very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Scott Tobias, here with Genevieve Kosky and Keith Phipps. Tasha Robinson is at South by Southwest, giving us the week to conspire against her. Here on The Next Picture Show, we believe that no film exists in a vacuum and that all culture is more interesting in context. So every other week, we get together to talk over a classic film and consider how it relates to a current movie. This week, we're pairing two stylish psychological thrillers about women entering into a murderous conspiracy. Genevieve, what are we plotting? Both of our films this week are about a criminal pact between two characters who unite to kill a sadistic, controlling figure in their lives, but share only a tenuous bond themselves. In Corey Finley's directorial debut, Thoroughbreds, Anya Taylor-Joy and Olivia Cook play two emotionally disturbed teenagers who revive a long-dormant friendship and begin to entertain the idea of killing Taylor-Joy's domineering stepfather. They do this despite having no firm bonds and no good reason to trust each other. The same is true of Vera Clouseau and Simone Signoret in H.G. Clouseau's classic shocker, Diabolique. They are wife and mistress to a cruel boarding school headmaster, which would seem to make them natural adversaries, but instead unites them in a common cause. There is a twist, however, and a big one. On today's episode, we'll talk about Clouseau's influential thriller, which ramped up his rivalry with Alfred Hitchcock for the title of cinema's reigning master of suspense and shocked audiences like nothing they would experience again until Hitchcock's Psycho five years later. Then on Thursday, we'll bring in Thoroughbreds, which trades stylishly in a very 21st century form of privileged sociopathy. For now, though, it's time to run the bath, next picture show listeners, and try to keep your head above water. Une baignoire diabolique. Un costume d'homme diabolique. Une malle en osier diabolique. Une piscine. Qui l'a enfoncé sous l'eau? When I was a young cinephile in college, devouring every VHS tape and Laserdisc and repertory screening that I could in the downtime between classwork, I can recall two moments that shocked me so completely that I gave myself an ice cream headache. The first was the end of Nicholas Rogue's Don't Look Now, when all the montage techniques and spooky Venice atmosphere paid off in a startling act of violence. If you've seen that movie, you know exactly the scene I'm talking about. The second was the end of H.G. Clouseau's Diabolique, which had me so completely fooled that I felt like Vera Clouseau at that moment, nearly passing out from the most traumatic twist imaginable. Clouseau was at the top of his game when he made Diabolique. In fact, cinema itself was at the top of its game when Clouseau made Diabolique, Back when we did a My Favorite Movie Year feature for the AV Club, I chose 1955, 
a year so good that the Clouseau film only finished fourth in my top five list behind The Night of the Hunter, All That Heaven Allows, and Ordet. In any case, Clouseau's previous film was The Wages of Fear, another one of the most suspenseful films ever made, about desperate truck drivers hired to haul nitroglycerin over a Rocky Mountain Pass. Diabolique was adapted from a book by French crime fiction writers that published under the nom de plume of Boileau Narzajac. Alfred Hitchcock, who had his own bid for the book undercut by Clouseau, would turn the author's next novel into Vertigo. And beyond that, they scripted the great film Eyes Without a Face, so pretty good team. The twist ending of Diabolique is famously well protected by the titles that close the film, which warn viewers not to be devils themselves by spoiling it for others. Hitchcock would take a page from Clouseau there, too, with a theater warning that required people to see Psycho from the very beginning, or not at all. Clouseau's early version of a spoiler alert got me thinking about spoiler culture today, specifically this question, does knowing spoilers really spoil the experience? I think most of us would say yes in the case of Diabolique, which springs its surprise so effectively and doesn't cheat to make it work. As I said earlier, being utterly bamboozled by it the first time around is an experience I remember vividly. The first time, you go mad right along with Vera Clouseau's Christina. She's conspired with Simone Signoret's Nicole to drug and drown her tyrannical husband, Michel, who's also Nicole's lover. She watches him pass out. She watches Nicole push his head into the bathtub. She helps drag his body back to Michel's crappy boarding school and dump him into the filthy pool. When his body doesn't surface after the pool is drained, we're perplexed, right along with her. And when he and Nicole stage his resurrection from the bathtub, you're right there feeling her horror and trauma. Yet watching the film on second, third, or fourth viewing is satisfying in a different way. We can appreciate the care with which Clouseau orchestrates this counter-scheme without cheating. We can connect more with the feelings of guilt and betrayal that sees Christina as she watches this shameful crime get turned against her. And we can better admire the precision of the staging and the performances, which sell the suspense and emotion so persuasively. I'm grateful Diabolique wasn't spoiled for me, but I also believe that Diabolique reveals this truth. Great filmmaking can never be spoiled. Alors qui Je sais pas moi, n'importe qui. Par hasard. Et oui, par hasard. Et fichet. Il était à la morgue par hasard. Et le costume. Et l'hôtel. Et les élèves maintenant. C'est par hasard si ça se rapproche un peu plus chaque fois. Je t'en prie, calme-toi, hein. Moi non plus, j'ai pas les nerfs en acier. Tout s'explique, va. Dans la vie, il n'y a pas de miracle. Malheureusement. Chaque fois que je ferme les yeux, il me semble que je vais le voir entrer. Tu vas te taire, oui Il doit être déjà dans un bel état. Oui. S'il est mort. Okay, so, Keith, you had seen Diabolique before, correct That is correct. Genevieve, you had not. That is correct. Okay, so in light of what I just said about how the film plays on first viewing and subsequent viewing, I am very curious to know about each of your experiences with it. I was kind of spoiled on this movie going into it or i'll say i was half spoiled because i definitely had some knowledge of this movie somewhere in my head canon whether it was like from reading your my favorite movie year piece or just kind of stuff i've absorbed over the years like scott would never spoil it, no? <laughs> no. that's that's true that's true but i mean the movie has as we'll talk later really been filtered yeah, into the culture e exactly yeah. so i had some awareness that michelle was not actually dead like like I, mm. I feel like without that awareness it's possible to experience this film as a ghost story it kind of has that 
eerie element to it and like it's obviously kind of leaning into your thought that like there this might be a ghost at work i never had that assumption like i knew going in like that michelle wasn't really dead what i did not know was that it was a scheme with nicole so that twist was fun to experience in the moment and did kind of give me a little extra shock on top of the the shock that i knew was coming but was still like very very effective in the moment the rising from the bathtub Mm -hmm. and coming out of the bathtub so and then there's just like a couple of really great grace notes after that like i said the kind of the revelation that he was in on it with nicole and then the the very very last scene with the boy being punished for talking about christina telling him to do something so even though i was i guess technically spoiled on this film there's like just so much happening in those final moments that i think it was still like a completely fresh experience in its way mm-hmm. well i hadn't seen it in a long time so a lot of my memory of the particulars had faded i, I remember you know the basic conspiracy and, and what it was so i could kind of watch it come together and appreciate it focus on other things other than the plot in some ways watching it again and i like that about it i think you're right uh, you know second time around it, it's still a great movie it is not spoiled as you would say you know of course having seen the film and, and i i legitimately was absolutely shocked by every part of it when i saw it at first i did not expect uh, i experienced it just as christina does i just I, I did not know what was coming i was i didn't know what was going on when the body suddenly disappears from the pool you're like what the heck is going on and you you feel so strongly the the psychological torment that's just eating at christina which is present anyway because morally this was a very difficult thing for her to have to do you know now she's being faced with this additional trauma but so that part of it that shocked me on first viewing and on a second i just appreciated the care with with which clouseau and the writers sort of set everything up and i think one of the things that's crucial about it is that they start plotting right away right Mm -hmm. We don't necessarily start to think, hmm, do they really trust each other? What has what this relationship been like to yeah. this point? You know, they seem like they're already co-conspirators and they're comfortable with each other. And, and Nicole is giving Christina a certain amount of consolation. And it's it's an unusual relationship. And people comment on how unusual it is. But I think we accept it at face value without thinking, wait, maybe there's something. Maybe there is a rivalry there, as there should be, because we're talking about someone who is Michelle's wife and someone who's michelle's lover i mean they should be strongly at odds but he, he's so awful other union seems plausible because mm-hmm. you know i mean one, nicole's introduced with a black eye mm-hmm. you know yeah one's been through this horrible experience and now the other's going through this horrible experience and they and there are only two people that can share that horrible experience or so we think yeah there's also like some really brilliant misdirection in the kind of the first half of this movie in terms of like seeding little things that make you think they're they're going to come back and implicate uh, Nicole and Christina like the boys seeing them looking at the bottle mm-hmm. and the neighbor making a call about the bathtub noise you know and the gas station attendant noticing the the water leaking in the truck like there's all these you know, little moments that kind of register is like, oh, that's going to be important. And they're not. They're total red herrings, yeah, <laughs> you, yeah. you know. The dumping of the body in the pool happens at the exact midpoint of this movie. And up to that point, like up until the point where you're waiting for the body to surface and it's not surfacing, I feel like you're kind of processing this as a investigation waiting to happen, you know, like we're, we're, the rest of the movie is going to be about them getting caught. And then it turns into something totally different. 
Yeah. And it's really effective, I think, because of some of that work with the red herrings in the in the first half. Yeah, he's he's a director in the ways of the fear. I mean, to me is I, I don't know if there's a more suspenseful film than that one moment to moment. But he has this wonderful ability to really pull off the set piece on top of having a good feel for like the larger picture. So, you know, he can get ring all the tension possible out of, say, dragging the body from you know in a large wicker basket and trying to get it put it on the truck and it's it's weirdly heavy obviously yeah. it's got a body inside and the lid is not tight enough and he's just you know i mean that happens constantly throughout the wages of fear because the wages of fear they're driving these trucks that they hit a big bump then the truck will explode it's nitroglycerin so he's able to give you those moments where you're just really on the edge of your seat uh, but then also have a feel for the whole piece and how it's going to work on you as well. So I, I mean, I really feel like at this moment, or even just just broadly, he really was Hitchcock's true rival in terms of just having that great sense of style and, and that precision and, and ability to evoke suspense. There is kind of a, a frog, what is it, frog boiling to death kind of thing going on here, where it slowly turns up the heat and, and the style slowly changes until it starts as you know very suspenseful very bit by bit building suspense about this plot and then you know it turns into a horror film so slowly you don't even quite notice what he, that you're watching a different sort of film by the end yeah and in contrast i think to how hitchcock we could probably spend the whole podcast like talking about the ways hitchcock would have done this different if if Clouseau hadn't scooped him mm-hmm. um by like by one hour i think is, is how the story goes you know that may be apocryphal yeah, heard, but heard, yeah. you, you know you can see Hitchcock's attraction to this material. Though. Yeah, yeah, Certainly. for sure. But one thing I don't think Hitchcock would have done is stage that final sequence with no music whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Like, it's really interesting how silence is used in this movie. And like, there's there, no there's no score except there, at the beginning and the end, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, sound is used really effectively mm-hmm. in several parts of this movie, but there's no like score kind of directing your emotions, or your emotional response to what's mm-hmm. happening, which adds, I think to the uncanny feeling or the the feeling of being off balance and not being quite sure what's happening because there isn't that cue coming from the score of what you're meant to be feeling in this moment. It helps also too because you know you're sympathetic to these women as they plot against this awful person uh, as we as we suspect but you know should you really be on their side they are going to murder mm-hmm. somebody and, and I think music would probably tilt it too far in one direction or another mm-hmm. or the wrong music certainly and but having taking music out entirely is is you know eliminates that possibility. And keep in mind 1955 was also the year of Rafifi which was number 5 on my list of <laughs> films from 1955. I mean this is like any other year any of those five films would be number one. I mean, it's an unbelievable year. But like Rafifi has maybe the single most famous heist sequence in all of cinema, and that is all natural sound. There's no music at all. It's quite a long sequence, and and you really – and there it's like, you know, I mean, they're trying to pull off a jewel heist, and – they can't make any noise. And so when they do make noise, I mean, we're, you know, sharply attuned to what those noises are because uh, the stakes are so high. And I think these productions couldn't have known about each other at the time because they both came out the same year. But the principle, I think, is the same to kind of just live in that silence and then in make the natural sounds you do hear, particularly in this case, like footsteps walking on the on Scariest hardwood. typewriter ever. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That typewriter. Oh, my gosh. What a... Oh, God. That, that, that is really freaky but all those sounds they work together and and the other thing too is like i think in order to make it work like that in order to take that risk you really have to know what you're doing on a staging level clouseau just does such a nice job establishing space 
just doing the fundamental things of where people are in relation to each other, doing a lot of things with lighting, shadows, etc., and building suspense that way. And so. I think I got a good—you get a good sense of the of the layout of both the school and of the the apartment building, where the two primary places where the action happens. Yeah, that boarding school is such a good setting. Just mm-hmm. like it's not quite dilapidated, but just its lack of prestige or the lack of care that's gone into it is just so evident from the look. I mean, the the pool is obviously just mm-hmm. a, a perfect symbol of that. That pool is like... You can, uh, you can smell it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the slime on the bottom. Just, uh. But, you know, also the interiors we get of the school are like, they're very claustrophobic. That dining hall is just like really... That's like one of the most upsetting rooms I've ever <laughs> I've ever yeah. seen for like reasons I can't quite put words to. But sure. yeah, um, and Christina's room has this very kind of imposing religious uh, iconography everywhere feel. You know, it kind of feels like she's in a confessional booth or something or, or parts or, or there's like that shot of the detective. He's framed a couple times like behind like spindles that like evoke jail bars you you know and there's just everything about the setting just again it contributes to the feeling of being unsettled and yeah there's a lot of really small details that bring out the setting i mean for one right at the beginning just the truck going through a a pothole with like a puddle i mean that just that that, you know that that just you know it's just a very little insert shot that just sticks with you or or the fact that you know on recess one of the boys is sort of graffitiing the side of the school and it's mm-hmm. just like he gets disciplined but you know to a certain extent there's a sense that nobody really cares i mean this is kind of a crummy place that you know they don't care about educating these children uh, or at least at least uh, michelle doesn't care about educating these children it's about ripping them off and, and about not spending money about feeding them rotten <laughs> fish <laughs> for dinner which is one of the detail one of the great scenes of the movie and i mean you're talking about like the dining room hall i mean that whole scene definitely leaves an impression a bad taste in your mouth yeah exactly <laughs> it leaves a bad taste in your mouth but then the, then there's i think it's the aftermath it's also it's the site where you get this scene of off-screen physical abuse right isn't there a bit where is it nicole or christina that gets taken aside in that room and then clearly hit christina christina right off screen and and uh, and so you have that impression the abuse and the fish that he's forcing people to eat all of that action itself gives the room a feeling quite apart from you know the space itself and how it's utilized so uh, yeah he's he's really good at it it's a it is it's a great setting and it's nice to have a movie really develop one space or in this case two really two primary locations this and, and when they're out of town and make those it count rather than be too sort of scattered in, in locations you get a really nice feel for how this place works and just the kind of soul of the place a rotten soul yeah absolutely <laughs> just just very much like uh the headmaster it's like it's like the headmaster's uh soul is externalized by this horrible school <laughs> that he runs but so, you know, we talked about, you know, this is a film that is committed, to use Hitchcock's words, of playing the audience like a piano. Uh, what sort of resonates you be, beyond that? What what uh, what themes kind of stand out for you uh, with this film? Well, I think we touched on some of the things that resonate. I mean, the setting is really vibrant and it is sort of this perfect home for, well, Michelle, someone who's just given up, you know, whatever 
spark he might have had or enthusiasm for for being an educator is mm-hmm. has long since vanished and you know the 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 setting sort of materializes you know makes that material in a way yeah i always think i always think the whole marriage and the school mm-hmm. everything is just one long con i don't think there's any sense like this was this was a, a once idealistic guy yeah no i mean this is just a bad guy in my view i guess what sticks with me is kind of the part of the movie that still feels sort of unresolved after having finished it which is the relationship between nicole and christina because like it's so well rendered and then it's completely undercut in the last few moments of the movie and that's absolutely the point and it's like their relationship is like part of the misdirection that is happening but like their alliance is so fascinating to me and there's so much that's kind of like percolating there underneath that when it's revealed that Nicole was playing Christina it just it all just kind of goes up in a puff of smoke you know like Mm -hmm. it wasn't there and like that's kind of fascinating in, in, in its own right but in this is just I think kind of me projecting my own tastes and modern sensibilities like onto this movie like I I was a little bummed that I was denied this like female bonding you know experience and it it ends up being something a lot more I guess crass or soulless in in the end Mm -hmm. but you know that's that's the movie like I mean I wouldn't want I don't want to sacrifice the endings you know to uh for that relationship but just kind of the the feeling of like oh Oh, at the end, yeah. like that kind of sticks with me. Well, I think that maybe this is just by virtue of me having seen it so many times. I think you, you can look in, in retrospect and see how much Nicole is just playing Christina mm-hmm. the entire time. I mean, and how calm she is all the time. She's wearing those sunglasses inside. Yeah. Um, she is leading Christina through this whole ordeal through the poison that she's going to put in the, the wine bottle you know through the actual killing itself i mean she is in control of that situation and she she's sort of uh tempting christina who is who i think does have a real moral and religious character to compromise those values and so at the end that's just the payoff to all of that work that she's right. done and you know which is that she is greedy and terrible yeah. <laughs> just like michelle is yeah and, and i and i should say uh, not to cannibalize the second half of this podcast too much but I, I will admit that like my reading of their relationship may have been informed by seeing thoroughbreds before watching mm-hmm. this movie and like seeing a pretty direct character analog between the two female characters here and the two female characters in that movie Mm -hmm. and assuming or projecting what the relationship was based on what the relationship was in thoroughbreds yeah so you know maybe that's just the format of our podcast becoming a bit of a a liability you know at play but that was my experience of the film shut it down yeah Yeah. i think it's an asset too though in a way i mean again we'll get into thoroughbreds but but who who ends up being what mm-hmm. in terms of analog is what makes thoroughbreds kind of fun. But um, taking thoroughbreds out of it, though, it, the twist almost brings in. We talked about it being a suspense film and a horror film. It almost makes it turns it into a noir mm-hmm. where, where oh, yeah. she's recast as the the femme fatale and Christine is the noir heroine who you know a virtuous person who makes one bad decision and, and it sort of leads them down a path to damnation. I mean, she starts this film wearing uh, you know braided pigtails. You know, yeah. how, how could someone like that? commit murder and, and then and yet 
here we are. Yeah, no, definitely. I, I mean, style-wise, it's, it certainly is. I mean, I, one of the commenters on the Criterion uh, DVD was comparing it to like those like old Val Luton, Jacques Tourneur movies, like mm. Cat People or something like that, where there's not a lot of there wasn't a lot of money, so a lot was just about atmosphere and, and single source lighting and that sort of thing. So, I mean, you also have the detective figure here, which or right, the retired detective uh, who's great. Probably, yeah, yeah, I love that character. <laughs> It's like a Columbo moment at the very end. Yeah. And one more thing. But is know? that is that kind of like a dictate of the time that that has to happen, that they have to be punished for this, they can't get away with it? I mean, there's outside the production code. I mean, it's made in France. I'm not sure yeah, what, what the, yeah. the, the standards were in, in France at the time. I think I would have been happier with an ending where they got away with it. Yeah. But that's me. Yeah. Do you think we have that, to, that is you, Scott. That is <laughs> but, the detective, but I guess the fact that a detective is a good character makes it go down a little bit easier. Yeah. I also like came away from that moment being like, wait, you only get ten to twelve years in prison for that? Like, like I mean, they killed, they murdered someone. Like, there was intent behind that, you you know, like and vast conspiracy and probably child endangerment. Like, they should get. No, they a, just they lot basically she she had the heart condition. Um, so it was we, her fault. You're saying you're blaming the victim. Well, you know, I'm just saying like she was she uh, somebody who who was in better condition would have would have might have survived such a such an ordeal. Uh, but that is that is actually what a scheme to shock someone to death to make that the criminal conspiracy rather than just straight up murder. That is well di- diabolique is what it is is di- diabolical. <laughs> um, one of the things that fascinates me about the film is just Christina herself and her motives and and that performance by Vera Cluzo because mm-hmm. it's just it, the film does such a good job of putting you on her side in really getting you to understand why she's doing what she's doing, how, how difficult it is. I mean, she is, she's a moral person. She's a religious person. There's a reason why her mm-hmm. room is surrounded by all, all this religious iconography. Um, she's in this relationship where she's being abused emotionally and physically. And we can see like openly used too. like, I mean, he's like, he's very clear about he's in it for her dowry. You know, yeah. it's not even like love that's curdled. It, and again, in retrospect, you can see how, she is being pushed over that line by uh, Michelle and, and Nicole, uh, particularly in the scene right before they he's fake drowned. Uh, the whiskey he, drinking, he right? Drinks the, he, he drinks in right, and she knocks it out of his his hands because she's got cold feet and doesn't want. And and he's, he he responds her. by being right, <laughs> incredibly cruel, and slaps her. And then then she you get that delicious moment where she pours him a nice uh, big glass and keeps on pouring. All that stuff is great, I, and I like the position this film puts you in and how, how it puts you so much in alignment with her, both in understanding her motives uh, and also really reflecting, understand, you know, seeing it through the prism of her experience more than the other two characters uh, and being kind of thrown along with her. Uh, you know, I kind of wish I could experience the film again for the first time just to, have, mm-hmm. just to know what that shock is like. But, oh, my God, I, can, I just I have such a, such a vivid memory of being – I think I saw it in – film class and when he gets out of that bathtub just being like (laughs) (laughs) stunned i mean it's a stunning it's a stunning thing to witness and i i I, what it must have been like for audiences in 1955 to to be bamboozled by this film as as i was oh my gosh i think kim newman on the criterion edition points out that it may be the first time we see anyone remove contact lenses on the screen and that that in itself was kind of a shocking thing just to to see oh yeah yeah those lenses are really i keep saying unsettling but like it's intentionally so it's like they they gave him the eyes of tor johnson and flan (laughs) 
oh gosh, just urge you for the bath and just doing that nonchalantly. I mean, that's that's kind of a Hitchcock thing too. Mm-hmm. That, that that felt like almost wry matter manner in which the scheme is revealed. Um, all the supporting, all the sort of comic relief supporting characters felt very Hitchcockian too. Or the detective and also the employees of the school felt yeah. like very. The old, the old the old man yeah. who's com- who, with his radio shows. He didn't want his radio shows interrupted by oh, the, yeah. the bath. Yes, <laughs> yes, wearing a beret. I, I mean, not to engage in culture cliches, but sort of the casualness with which a man could have a wife and his mistress under under the same yeah. roof, and then in those neighbors with the berets. Uh, uh, it's like you know, there, there's there's it's very French film. It's very. You know, <laughs> uh, we certainly would like to have seen uh, Hitchcock's version, but this would. I mean, this I think wouldn't I think, be as French. I think Christine is like straight up eating a baguette at one point. Yeah. <laughs> yes. 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 That was the other detail. Yep. We know where we are, and it is, and it is France. So, I mean, are there any other standout moments for you all beyond the ending and the, the drowning scene itself? I think is really uh, just piteously staged, and, and I think you buy this man is dead. I mean, if I have a quibble with the fr- the films, I don't know that you can really fake the drowning quite as easily as they, they do, you know, but yeah, that's in part because it's, it's just so convincingly um, the way that scene plays out of him sinking under the water and that look on his face. Uh, oh yeah. Creepy. I, yeah. I think my, I guess my argument in favor of the film ends up doing there is that it's already kind of baked into the scheme that this is so difficult for Christina to do mm-hmm. that she wouldn't uh, be present or, or wouldn't want to watch mm-hmm. for too long. This, mm-hmm. this, uh, something like this happen. Uh, uh, I mean, she's done her part, which is to knock him out, to actually witness him being drowned. Uh, I don't know if she's going to stick around for that, but I'd have to watch the sequence again to see how long he's under underwater. I mean, we are told that he is a strong swimmer. You know, he. I think one of the other two male teachers, one of them calls him a fish or something. Mm-hmm. Oh. So I just took the implication to be like, he can hold his breath for a really long time. I, and also like the putting the tarp over the bathtub, I think would probably allow him to surface without Christina knowing. Those are pretty good details to yeah. include. I mean, not a tough thing to have to establish, but for him to kind of cross the T's and dot the I's on that is pretty, uh, pretty good. Yeah, I was going to say, it is obviously the real actor as well. And I don't think he was actually drowned in the course of making this film. So, you know, his, <laughs> no. uh, his breath under there. So yeah, that's true. Maybe, that's maybe it's just on me to not... not well, Vera Clouseau was actually did have a heart, yeah. a condition and and died uh, what a few years later a few years later yeah 1960 yeah. i you know oh, right. well he was he was notoriously cruel to his <laughs> he was one of those auteurs who was uh tough on yeah. his people for sure called so, them instruments actors yeah. were instruments and yeah. and supposedly the the fish she ate actually was spoiled <laughs> you know to, to get a authentic reaction yeah oh nice I wanted to briefly bring up the morgue scene. Well, actually, I'm going to step back even further and just like bring up the conceit of the body washing up on the Seine and like how that factors in to Nicole and Michelle's plan or didn't and like how that ends up bringing the detective into the fray and like that seems like like it was sort of a bump in the road in their plan but nicole leaned into it and i'm i don't quite understand how that factors into their plan but the morgue scene itself i really loved in part for 
again, the unsettling nature of having the detective just like sitting there watching in the background for this whole thing, you know, and like you don't know what his deal is yet at, at that point, which she doesn't either, you know. So I also really love the shot or sequence, I guess, of the body being brought up for her to, to watch and like the the sheet over it kind of mirroring the the tarp over Michelle's body and the way that we just follow the body kind of up through the elevator like to the viewing room like it's just a kind of again what we were talking about with the boarding school just the establishment of space and how it contributes to the kind of the tone or the vibe of a, a scene and like how you how you feel watching it. Um, I thought was really well executed in the morgue. Yeah, I do like the idea, too, of a extremely well-plotted criminal conspiracy, nevertheless requiring a certain amount of improvisation mm-hmm. in the moment and, and not working out perfectly, because this is not an easy thing they're trying to pull off by any stretch. And there's a lot of, obviously, very careful planning, long-term planning to get as far as they, they get. But life has a way of kind of throwing some curveballs and you have to find a way to to adjust. I think that that's something that a good suspense film of, of this kind can do. Jeff, you already asked if you liked the film. You liked the film. Oh, it yes. sounds like it. Yes, okay. I liked it very much. <laughs> well, good. Uh, with that settled... I have recommended it to someone who, who has not been spoiled oh, on the ending, so I will hmm. report back when he please, watches it. Please, please. Uh, and uh, yeah, I assume people are listening to this podcast. I mean, it's, it's a spoilery podcast, so I'm sure everyone will have watched Diabolique dutifully, and if we have turned people onto it uh, just by this pairing alone, I would be really excited because uh, it's a wonderful film. But we'll be right back to talk about some more wonderful films uh, when we get into feedback on recent episodes. Now it's time for feedback, when our listeners weigh in with their responses to recent episodes and anything else in the world of film. We got an avalanche of emails about Stalker and Annihilation, uh, a pairing that really seemed to hit the Next Picture Show sweet spot. Keith, do you want to read one of them? Sure. Robert writes, I was really pleased with your pairing of Annihilation and Stalker, two terrific films that really do benefit from additional scrutiny. One thing I think bears discussion as a reference point is H.P. Lovecraft's The Color Out of Space, which finds a meteorite unleashing a color-based life form that mutates the environment around it in inexplicable ways, including the inhabitants of a nearby farm. I think that's a good reference point because in Lovecraft's cosmic view, good slash malevolent are really only human-based points of reference and have little relevance in discussing the larger cosmic entities that humans unfortunately encounter. In Annihilation, I think there's a fair amount of evidence that the Shimmer isn't particularly malevolent, but it's really making the deepest wishes of the self-destructive humans it encounters come true. Certainly, the Shimmer doesn't appear to be particularly malevolent to animal and plant life. I wouldn't intend this as one-to-one reading of symbols, but I note the woman who watched her child die from cancer is instead the first one taken. It doesn't have to watch anyone suffer. The woman who suffered from addiction in the past forces her fellow explorers to sit and experience what is in some way the reverse of an intervention. The cutter becomes a form that can be cut and regrow. The woman suffering from cancer becomes energy rather than see her body deteriorate. And Lena becomes something literally different than the woman who cheated on her husband. It's quite possible that she never truly betrayed the doppelganger, and they both get to start over without that betrayal hanging over them. I wouldn't intend for that to be the only reading of the film. It's too elusive for only one reading, but that stuck with me on reflection. I'm curious to your thoughts. 
Yeah, it's funny. Uh, when we did Shape of Water, I mentioned it reminded me of, of the Lovecraft story, The Shadow Over Inn's Mouth. And, and here we have someone doing a very good comparison to The Color Out of Space. Are all our movies secretly H.P. Lovecraft stories? <laughs> I was actually thinking, like, wait, think did, did, didn't, we ta- didn't we reference Lovecraft in relation to this? And it was The Shape of Water. You're right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But yeah, that's a very good read. I, I did not think of Color Out of Space, but, but it is a very Lovecrafting idea that, that this whatever in cosmic forces these people encounter are bigger. Um, they dwarf humanity and our ideas of, of good and evil. Lovecraft was was very much, you know, I, I, when I read Lovecraft, I think he's just very good at conveying fear and trembling. And then the sense, sense of, uh, to use somebody else's term, uh, but the sort of sense of how small humanity is in the scale of the universe. And I, I think there's a little bit of that here, too. I find the what happens to everybody reading pretty convincing, except I think Lena she did on her husband before he was a doppelganger. That was a pl- that was my reading of, of that. That 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 affair was, when, you know, when her husband was still president in their home before he even left for the Shimmer. I you know I think it may be some ambiguity there. So, but but I would not necessarily be on board with. with well, that. I I, th- I think what he is saying is that the doppelganger is somebody that she never betrayed. So that sure. allows them to both. One thing that raises is something that I didn't bring up on the podcast about this episode, but since we're talking about the Oscar Isaac doppelganger, I still haven't fully noodled out what it means that the version of him that we see blow himself up, what we're supposed to view as like the real him setting the bomb off, has a southern accent and that character never had a southern accent in any of the flashbacks. So, like, if there another doppelganger in the mix or what's happening there, I haven't figured that out yet. And that's, like, complicating what Robert is talking about. But It is an accent, isn't it? Yeah. No, yeah. it's it's very distinct southern accent that we haven't seen before. And, like, m- maybe he was, like, merging with one of the other members mm. of the party or something and, like... <laughs> got his accent so, I, don't, I don't know but. I, I want to see this movie again um which i'd recommend it really pays off to second view it's actually pretty well attended too i think this movie is kind of picking up a little, really little sort of mouth yeah. yeah um i hear people talking i literally just heard someone talking about it at the convenience store and started a conversation with her about it so <laughs> and the usher also said hey that's a really good movie <laughs> like, okay yeah, no but um i was kind of hung up on the tattoos which is something we didn't talk about on the on the show, and, and and how she picks up a tattoo. I mentioned this on Twitter, and someone pointed out if you look closely at the corpse that's on the wall of the you know is the swimming pool mm-hmm. in that one structure, he has that two tattoo on his arm. Yeah, Gina Rodriguez's character picks it up as well, and apparently someone else pointed out that apparently Oscar Isaac's character has a bear tattoo, oh. <laughs> <laughs> visible at one point. So I don't know. I think it's a movie that that definitely will stand up to scrutiny and benefits from uh, analyzing it closely. Yeah, one, and one little uh, point I'll make with regard to this letter, too, is I, I like the idea that, you know, the interaction between um, the Shimmer and the people who enter into it is not entirely random. It's not a random scrambling mm-hmm. of... It occasionally is a random scrambling of DNA or whatever constructive material humans and plants have. But the, you know, the fact that he, that he can make these connections, too, between the essential problems that these women are bringing into this space and how um, the space uh, reacts to them and forms around them and, and confronts them and transforms them uh, is interesting in itself and not that random. So a lot to puzzle over here. I mean, in Annihilation, I just think on so many levels, I mean, not only just thematically, but um, as a piece of filmmaking, it's just going to be 
here with us forever. I think it's that good. Yeah, no, it's it's terrific. And and I'll throw out a challenge to our readers: if you can find Lovecraft uh, parallels in all our movies, <laughs> right, send those out. Yeah. So so most of the feedback uh, was written in praise of one or both films. So I wanted to introduce a little criticism too from James, who offers some insight on the way Stalker and Annihilation use their setting. Genevieve. Sure. Uh, This is excerpted from a much longer email comparing the two movies. James writes, The connection I found myself evaluating is how the two films treat the mystery of their locales. Certainly with Stalker, you have a little explanation or sense of understanding presented for hardly any aspect of its operation, intent, or even a sense of its effect on the psychic space of the characters that venture into it, or vice versa. After seeing Stalker, you can revisit the events and ideas in your mind with new questions and find yourself going down new roads not traveled the last time you thought about it. Stalker's The Zone and the character's relationship with it is left very much an open and inviting question presented to the viewer to explore and participate in both during the film and afterwards. In Annihilation, the shimmer almost becomes a contrivance by the end. It's explained out loud as a light-refracting, signal-scrambling bubble that reprograms your DNA, and if it bothers you, the movie visually tells you that all you have to do is set it on fire and run. It will then be reduced to ash and nobody will have to worry about it anymore. Where the nature of Stalker's zone in the story overall is open and unanswered, maybe unanswerable, the nature of the shimmer is more closed to interrogation, because much of it has been reductively explained away. Any remaining questions you might have are moot anyway, because it's pretty easy to destroy. I mean, it's not that easy. No one was able to do it before Lena. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, I mean, it, sometimes you just get mauled by a bear and yeah. then become <laughs> part of the bear. I don't know if I... I you know, I was grateful for a lot of the explanation that we're given in Annihilation. I think the film gives you just enough information about what is happening to its characters as they progress through it. And I think you could make the argument that it doesn't give them enough because well, we, or at least when I saw a screening, I guess, with Keith, I don't think the audience was prepared for that final third. Um, I was prepared for it. I think, think the film did a good job preparing us for it. But they they were thrown for a loop despite having all of this stuff explained to them. So I think I think it's a little harsh this uh, assessment. I think Annihilation gives you enough information and not too much about how this place works. But and I think there's a lot of other mysteries to explore with this film that aren't explained away. But. Yeah, I'd, I'd also push back a little on the assertion that all you have to do is blow it up. Like I think what happens at that end is like a little more complicated than Lena tossing a bomb because like. It's predicated on Jennifer Jason Lee's character sacrificing or herself or dissolving, you know, and, and by doing that, creating that silvery doppelganger form, which is what Lena then destroys. Mm-hmm. So, like, there's some sort of manifestation of the shimmer happening in that form that only happened because of the events that took place leading up to it. You know, it wasn't like Lena just like threw the phosphorus bomb into the hole and then the shimmer blew up. Like there needed to be that manifestation of the shimmer to destroy and then like have that ripple effect out. So that's how I read the actual destruction of the shimmer to go down. Yeah. I I mean, I, uh, I don't know exactly what happened, but I, I, yeah, I do. I do. Think <laughs> no one <it> does. Is, <laughs> yeah. I think it's more complicated than it's, it's closer to what you were pointing out. But keep in mind, this is a this is a studio film that has been released in theaters in mm-hmm. everywhere, and uh, uh, I think it goes uh, deeper and challenges audiences 
more than just about anything I've, I've seen yeah. in the last few yeah, years. We, so. we got a lot of feedback on it. We, we may have to oh do gosh. some more on, on future episodes. It, we just, do. We did. There's a lot of... This is Blade Runner levels of feedback. I know. Are <laughs> we going to turn... Do, should we turn into a science fiction podcast? <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe, that's, maybe that would just send us to the stratosphere. But um, that wraps up our feedback for this episode. We always appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations. To reach us, you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. We may feature your response on a future episode or post it on Facebook for discussion. That's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In part two, we'll bring in Thoroughbreds and talk about its own disturbing story of feminine conspiracy and what it tells us about the young and privileged. Look for that later this week, or better yet, subscribe to The Next Picture Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcatcher of choice. Find us at nextpictureshow.net, follow us at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow, and follow us on Twitter at nextpicturepod so you'll always know when a new episode drops. Until then, we'll be dragging each other from place to place in a large wicker basket. <laughs> we'll see you next time. <laughs>